2: Please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjilung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr, and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi, and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today, something different for you. I'm posting up a beautiful workshop we did some time ago with the How I Quit Alcohol grads group with my very good friend who's an amazing trauma-informed psychotherapist. Her name's Jeannie O'Carroll. She's been on this podcast once before. I think it was around about episode 46, perhaps. Jeannie is an amazing, amazing therapist, and she's very skilled in complex PTSD. So this workshop was about that and learning how to recognize CPTSD, dealing with emotional flashbacks. She refers a lot to the work of Pete Walker, his book Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. So you'll hear me do a bit of a grounding session with a group before we get started and then very much a interactive conversation. So you'll hear people jumping in, asking Jeannie questions about their own experiences. So it's a great one to just listen and learn and reflect on. And obviously, we're talking about sensitive subjects. So if you feel they may trigger you, again, don't tune in. Jeannie and I are really excited. We have a retreat coming up, a very special retreat coming up in October 2024. Doing group work and all of that will be based around complex PTSD. So it will be a very different kind of a retreat. We will be doing yoga nidra every day, doing breath work and all those same things, but there will be a lot of group processing in this particular retreat around CPTSD. So if you're interested in that, I would say before signing up, definitely reach out to me, have a phone chat, we'll make sure it's the right fit. We'll have an intake form for it as well. So if that's something that interests you, particularly after hearing this chat, um, please reach out, let me know. But I hope you enjoy this workshop and this chat with the wonderful Jeannie O'Carroll and the wonderful How I Quit Alcohol Grads Group. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's such an honour to have you here talking to the How I Quit Alcohol Grads Group. Um, It's just such a pleasure and I'm very, very grateful as I know you're almost impossible to get, uh, get a session with. So yes, feeling very lucky, very special. Um, Before we get started, Jeannie,
0: would you be able to tell the group a little about yourself and the work that you do? It's a pleasure to be here. I've been working as a psychotherapist, I guess, for between 15 and 18 years. I trained way back in 2004 and I've worked in lots of different areas, but I guess very quickly, right from the beginning of my training, I sort of landed in the trauma I worked with refugees for many years in Sydney, the Torture and Trauma Service, which was supporting newly arrived refugees to settle in Australia. And then I did that for many years. And then when I moved to this area, to the Byron Bay region, I worked at a counselling organisation called Interrelate. And so they work with families and couples. And then I specialised, I was a clinical specialist for the Royal Commission into institutionalized sexual abuse. So that was a massive landmark kind of event that happened. And then they put services forward across the country to support people coming forward to tell their stories. And so that was a great honor to work in that program. So I worked with a lot of people who were acknowledging, talking about, getting support about sexual abuse that happened to them as children. And many of those people had never spoken about this before with anyone. So, yeah, I guess that gave me a lot of deep experience in working with more complex trauma and understanding the impacts of traumatizing childhoods on people and seeing the the ways that people learned how to cope and really building a deep respect for whatever that little one had to do in order to get through by themselves with experiences that were overwhelming, that were shameful, that where they lost the connection of trusting an adult. And I guess that extends to any kind of childhood trauma, whether it's neglect, whether it's being in violence, being in families where there is a lot of tension, where there is undiagnosed mental health issues. I'm now in private practice just in this last year, so I see people locally and I also do some Zoom work as well. And it's a great honor and I love my work. And I also just wanted to say as well, to just, well, I wanted to kind of acknowledge that I'm sitting here and working daily on Bunjalan country and, and wanting to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and also wanting to pay my respects to all of you and all your elders and your ancestors. And I think with when we, whenever we're talking about trauma, we're usually talking about intergenerational trauma. And so we're talking about how things get passed down through the generations. And yeah, just deep respect for all of you who are on a journey, it sounds like, to address a symptom. Drinking is a symptom of deeper distress and things that may have happened in the course of your life that you kind of now maybe open to understanding more and working with.
2: Wonderful. Thank you, Jeannie. Before we start the session, I would like to just do a quick grounding so that we can all just drop in and come together, observing. Perhaps becoming aware of your feet. You might become aware of the touch of your feet on the floor or in your shoes. You might become aware of your bum in the seat. Taking awareness to your the small of your back, the mid-back, upper back. Awareness to the arms, the forearms, the hands, the fingers. Becoming aware of your belly. And again, just noticing the belly as you breathe. Becoming aware of the chest, the jaw, forehead awareness to the crown of the head and then just taking this moment to just scan the body scanning noticing any areas of tension or constriction maybe any maybe any emotions that're showing up and without wanting any of those things to change just having an awareness Perhaps if you're feeling tightness in the tummy, perhaps seeing if you could just be with that feeling in the tummy or wherever the tightness or the constriction shows up. And just to see if you could relax the area, but not asking it to go. Maybe just sending a little nurturing thought. Towards that area. Seeing if you can relax a little around the area. Just welcoming all the emotions to show they're completely safe. It's okay just to be here as you are. Just becoming aware of your breath again. Maybe this time seeing if we can guide the breath a little more down into the belly. Maybe a little slower. Seeing if we can slow down the exhale. just doing three rounds of breath like this. Long, slow, steady into the belly. Letting go and softening with the exhale. Long, slow, steady into the belly. Releasing, letting go on the exhale. And finally, one long, slow, deep breath into the belly. And slowly releasing with the exhale. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. And welcoming you to this wonderful session today. And I hope that you guys all get something out of it. And so Jeannie, before we get started, if you could talk to the group about what is CPTSD? What is an emotional flashback? How does that look? How do we know when we're having one?
0: Yeah so we're very familiar with the most of us are familiar with PTSD which is post-traumatic stress disorder and the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of a single event trauma usually a single event trauma an accident having to run a a life-threatening situation being attacked any of those floods and when we then have experiences of like vivid flashbacks, like we feel that the trauma is happening right now, or we have intrusive thoughts and images of what happened, or we have nightmares, or we have reminders, triggers in our environment that take us back to that trauma. And we can get things like physical sensations, like sweating, nausea, increased heartbeat. So those are kind of post-traumatic stress kind of symptoms as a result of a traumatic event. When we start talking about complex PTSD and we're talking about emotional flashbacks, we're not talking about those kind of clear, vivid, the Vietnam War veteran who the helicopter goes overhead and they hit the ground and they start having visions of what happened. And that's what I love about Pete Walker's kind of distinction is that complex PTSD is... And when a child grows up in an environment, which is there's an ongoing and enduring either events that happen to the child, which are frightening, physical abuse, shouting, screaming, or things that happen to the child by not happening, which is not being comforted, not being reassured, not being loved, not being engaged with in a way that they can make sense. Of their environment and what's happening and so that develops into what we call complex ptsd and there's a guy a psychologist a traumatologist called john briere who kind of makes this point that actually if complex ptsd was really given its place that the dsm which is this big tomb the diagnostic manual of psychiatric disorders that would actually become very small it would just become a really thin little pamphlet So if it was really recognized that as a result of enduring failure of the parental family system to keep a child safe and meet their needs, emotional needs, physical needs, psychological needs, verbal needs for reassurance, that the result of that is this sort of complex trauma. And emotional flashbacks kind of fall into that. So what we call we've got this part of our brain which is called the amygdala which is like this little almond shaped part of our brain that is why it's like the smoke alarm and the smoke alarm is wired to detect danger and when we have an emotional flashback we are suddenly taken like the amygdala is hijacked and we are taken out of the present moment experience which might be we're having an argument with somebody or somebody at work challenges us and we feel put down. And suddenly the amygdala hijacks us and we're taken back into intense and frightening circumstances of childhood. It might be intense fear and despair, or it might be intense sadness, or it might be enraged reaction to this fear and despair. And we're taken back into our, the original experience of our abandonment, either our abandonment or our terror, which often for children, because if children experience big feelings and they're not soothed, it turns into shame. And so flashbacks are often when we find ourselves having a huge emotional reaction, a bigger emotional reaction than we would kind of expect to be having in that moment. And another sign that we're having an emotional flashback is that we often feel small. When we tune in, we often feel small, we feel helpless, we feel a bit hopeless, and and we kind of go into shame. And we might start getting either angry with others, so that outer critic, becoming very judgmental about others, or the inner critic, which is starting to beat ourselves up. I shouldn't have done that. I'm so stupid. I never get it right. Yeah. So Jeannie, I remember being on the beach with you and
2: talking to you about stuff from a bit of stuff from childhood and just talking to you about some of my reactions that I'd had that had had me a bit bewildered, I guess. And I remember that you told me about this book by Pete Walker, Complex PTSD: Surviving to Thriving. And I said to you, I don't need to read that because I didn't have any big T trauma stuff. No, no, that definitely not me. And I was very loved by my parents, just that mum had an addiction and she was a bit unpredictable, but mostly I felt love. If anything, my siblings copped it far worse than I did. And then what was beautiful is you just sort of said to me, you know, Danny, sometimes what people do as a coping mechanism is they minimize their own trauma. And even then, when he said that, I thought, oh no, I'm not minimizing. I'm just, no, I'm fine. <laughs> and I went and read that book anyway, because I thought, oh, well, if Jeannie's recommending it, I'll go have a read. And oh my gosh, I just had so many light bulb moments reading that book. And I understood finally my own behaviors. Like an example, just I'd feel upset about something that would happen or Ash might do something and I'd feel upset and get angry. And then I'd go into complete shutdown and sometimes not talk, like giving the silent treatment for days on end. And it's just, I knew it was ridiculous, but i I couldn't figure it out. I just felt off and I just wanted to be on my own and I just couldn't figure it out. And so when I read this book, I started to understand those behaviours and the the flight or fight, the fawn response, the freeze response, and I started to see these patterns that were playing out in my life. And rather than shaming myself, which is what I used to always do, I was able to understand it so much better and I think that just gave me amazing clarity.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's really helpful to that some of the symptoms of an emotional flashback might be a feeling of worthlessness or shame and guilt. Or like you were saying, Danny, problems controlling your emotions, problems connecting with other people and relationship problems like having sometimes with complex trauma. It's difficult to maintain relationships. It's difficult to keep trust. So we withdraw. Or we use things to help us cope. And so the emotional flashbacks are often tap into that feeling of that we start withdrawing or we feel we can't speak up. We're taken by fear. If I speak up, something terrible might happen. If I just even tell my friend, I was upset that you were late. But if I tell her, I'm upset that you're late, maybe it will blow up like it used to blow up as a child. And I got hit. So that emotional flashback is when just really things that you, that involve you speaking up about your feelings and letting people know whether it's work situation whether it's with your partner whether it's with your children we become kind of hijacked and frozen we can either go into the four f's we can go into an over fight response or we can find ourselves fleeing into kind of upper activities or we can find ourselves freezing and going numbing ourselves by watching tv or kind of more of the downers you know avoidance numbing out drinking or we find ourselves fawning and overly you know into a kind of codependent form which Mm -hmm. is trying to please and appease in order to ensure that we are safe you know that this person doesn't get angry with us
2: yeah the fawn one's a big one too like falling over ourselves to try and keep people happy so that we kind of feel that we're in a safe space still. And that's the big one.
3: Mm. I hate to bring it back, but that's exactly what I went through earlier today. Mm. Just feeling so belittled by what had happened to me and really bringing it back to that childhood sort of feelings of don't make a fuss, just belittling, feeling terrible. And then when I stopped and thought about it, it was like, I'm really not in the wrong here. I've done nothing wrong. I feel good about myself. And I just thought of it from a different perspective. So yeah, all those feelings of me coming flooding back, you're not good enough. Oh my God, this is what they think of me. All that comes flooding back. And like you, Danny, you sort of say, I never had any major trauma kind of thing. How can this be trauma? But it, it is those feelings of when you were sort of 10, 11, 12 years old of being told off or whatever. And me feeling that instant, fight or flight reaction and then to just put it away for a bit and think about it was completely my experience today. So I'm really grateful to be in this little workshop because it's all coming home to me, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it sounds like you caught that tendency to, to, you know, the inner critic to start kind of minimising or judging or criticising yourself and you were able to hold yourself and go, actually... No, I'm okay. I haven't, I didn't really do anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I have rights to be respected. I don't need to abandon myself.
2: But Isn't that beautiful to be able to catch it before it virals out? It's so well done, Sarah.
0: I think it's a real
3: female thing too. I hate to sort of bring this up as well, but what happened to me today would never happen to my male colleagues. Never, ever, ever happened to my male colleagues. And getting that sort of hang on kind of <laughs> let's have a think about this for a minute, that really hit home as well.
0: Yeah, so putting it into a kind of context and, and maybe not taking it as personally, like seeing a bigger kind of, yeah. of how these things happen. And also another thing that just came to me as well is that you stopped yourself from lapsing into another big feature of complex trauma and emotional flashbacks is that it's that kind of black and white thinking. It's all or nothing. Either I'm a complete idiot and fool and I'm shameful and I'm weak, or that other person is a total, you know, this it's all or nothing. And being able to, yeah, when we be able to kind of find our ground and take care of ourselves and put things into perspective, there's more room, it's not so polarized. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh my God, who here has ever done some black or white thinking? Fuck. <laughs> I think a lot of us binge drinkers in the room are, are very much all or nothing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. yeah, all or nothing, isn't it? I don't think I had any sort of
2: traumatic experiences happen through my childhood. Probably mm. the only sort of thing would have been being subject to financial stresses. So mum and dad were always constantly worried about money and they never sort of hid that from us. So I was always worried for them. And I just became such a, I used to worry all the time. Like if my brother went to school camp, I'd stay up all night worrying about him. And I think that sort of started off, you know, my anxiety, but I'm just wondering, my mum was part of the stolen generation
0: Mm. and Jeannie, I'm just wondering if perhaps I could have some intergenerational trauma there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people through the Royal Commission that came forward and a lot of stolen generation families and absolutely there's without doubt and you know even when you say you didn't really have any trauma but you were very aware about there not being enough money already that is for a little one when little ones are aware of things that are beyond their development when they don't have the capacity to figure out what that means, then that creates a kind of trauma. So, your little being, you started to become a little adult at a very young age and start kind of being concerned and worrying about physical needs being met. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's just been so much suffering through the stolen generation, through children being removed, through families being separated. And it does get passed on, absolutely. Jeannie, could you
2: just speak to the group a little about parentification? Parentification, on my understanding, is where the child ends up having to look after the emotional needs of the parent, and oftentimes, yeah, that's too much for a child, but often the child in that situation, that's just what they do, that's what they're used to, and that's what they have to do to stay safe.
0: Oh, definitely. So parentification or role reversal, it happens a lot. Interestingly, it definitely, I know from working working with youth at risk and working with a lot of indigenous families and also working with a lot of refugee families, when there's a lot of adversity in the environment around survival, whether that's financial or bodily, physical survival, then often children become hypervigilant because they're reading, they're looking to their caregivers to see whether they're okay, whether they can, everything's good. So when parents are stressed, then children become overly observant and overly vigilant. And then they start worrying. And then they start actually behaving like little adults when they don't have the capacity or the maturity to do so. And it might even result in actually looking after counseling parents and telling mom and dad, everything's going to be okay. Or, Not just doing a single paper round, but doing a triple paper round and bringing money home and trying to save things or not eat as much. There's all these subtle ways that children, when they start believing that they need to step into a position of being bigger and stronger when they're actually, they're just needing their parents to be the bigger, stronger, wiser kind. Yes. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Yeah.
2: It's a big one, the parentification, and it shows up a lot. Often children are in that situation where they've had to take on far too much responsibility. I think that starts as a a young teenager. So when I was 13, then having my first drink and just
0: feeling that relief and just
2: not to have to worry because it took away
0: the worry. Yeah, it took the worry out of your little nervous system that had become so wired to, is there going to be enough? Are we okay? What do I need to do? What can I do? And sometimes when parents can't hide, when they share too much of their own stresses, the result is is that little child's nervous system becomes overly burdened. So having your first drink, it's like whew, wow, can relax, can let go.
2: Going into the Pete Walker, 13 steps of managing flashbacks. Okay. Um, I had time to go through all of them. Perhaps you could mm-hmm. do some that you go to, Jeannie.
0: So one of the things that Pete Walker often says as well, which I love, is that he reframes flashbacks as being messages from the wounded inner child about the denied or minimized traumas of childhood. When we're not witnessed in childhood for things that hurt, or things that were upsetting, things that were confusing, things that were worrying, when that's not acknowledged, when a parent can't say, hey, I know that you're really worried about our financial situation and I'm really sorry, but, you know, mum and dad have got this. It's okay. often hear people saying, oh, my childhood wasn't as bad as that person. They had that happen. And I always say, well, there's no hierarchy of suffering. Mm. Each person's suffering is their suffering. And so Pete Walker says that flashbacks are almost like a message. It's like the little wounded child is clamoring validation to go I'm here and it hurt whatever it was whatever little or big so if that just helps as well to connect us as well that when we acknowledge we're having a flashback we also are connecting with our inner child with that wounded part. I think the first step for me that I love is just really that most people get a kind of sense of relief from is just to say I'm having an emotional flashback. Flashbacks take us into this sort of timeless part of our psyche that feels like it's never going to end that we're helpless and hopeless and when you're a child and you you're worried or upset or someone scares you our sense of time is different we feel like it's never going to end it feels endless so just being able to say ah I'm having an emotional flashback I feel afraid but I'm not in danger and it might be I feel afraid Financially, that I'm not going to have any money. It might not be being afraid of physical violence, but it's all the ways that fear enters our system. Mm -hmm. I'm safe now here in the present, far from the dangers of the past. Mm -hmm. So, those are the kind of step one and step two. I'm having an emotional flashback. I'm feeling afraid, but I'm not in danger. And then, step three is really important, which is owning your right and your need to have boundaries reminding yourself that I'm an adult right now in the present and I don't have to allow anyone to mistreat me and I'm free to leave a dangerous situation and I'm also free to protest behavior that is unfair yeah so that's that kind of reminding ourselves that we have a right to have boundaries and we have a right to have feelings and acknowledge them
2: I love that so beautiful Millie crying here what if someone's Maybe it was a pre-verbal trauma or a trauma that may have happened in the womb or Mm. perhaps as a baby that they can't actually remember.
0: That's a very, very good point. And what you're talking about there is implicit memory. So we have explicit memory, which are memories that come online often from three and up, but not always, because sometimes because of trauma, we block out things as well, even at later ages. But Implicit memory is where the body keeps the score. Uh, Hippocampus is not recording and kind of we don't have a timeline. I was six years old, I arrived at school and this happened. Implicit memory is more stored in the body in fragments. Usually one of the steps I think in emotional flashback is familiarizing yourself and making yourself aware of psychoeducation around trauma and recognizing knowing your history If one of your siblings died while your mother was pregnant with you or your mother was depressed had postnatal depression after you were born or some significant thing happened under three to your family. So what was going on in your family? Was there any medical interventions? You know, oh, yeah, I met a woman recently when I was in England who she had medical trauma because her hips were out of alignment. One leg was short. She's now in her 50s. And they kind of at the age of three sort of strung her upside down in order to stretch out her hips. And as a three-year-old, she's clamped and had no ability to be able to conceive that people were trying to help her. I guess it's really important to know and understand what was happening in your family, what happened in the womb, what happened in your birth, and recognize that that absolutely impacts on your present even if you were premature and you have to be Mm -hmm. put in a midi crib, feelings of abandonment as well. Yeah, we we used to think, I remember working with a woman from Sierra Leone, we were running a training in Sydney, and it was a group of women from seven or eight different African countries, and we were talking about what is trauma. And one of the Sierra Leone women was beautiful. She said, I've got trauma, but my children were too young. And I said, oh, so tell me the ages of your children. And it turned out that her three-year-old daughter was in her arms when her husband, the father, was killed in front of the family. But because the mother was shielding the little one and closing her eyes, she believed the child wasn't traumatized. And so there was a really big kind of part of our education was letting people know that children get traumatized by, you know, they don't have to see what happened. They picked up the nervous system of the parent, the intensity of that situation. But they might not have any recollection as an adult of that event, but their bodies absorbed it.
1: Something that's been coming up with me the last week is my mum saying children should be seen and not heard. Mm. And I'm trying to work with why that keeps presenting itself to me. I don't know. I can't answer that yet. I'm working with it. Might be with speaking up or speaking my truth about stuff. Could be stuff to do with work or my relationships with people, that kind of thing that's holding me back from speaking Um, how I feel. And you were just talking about birthing trauma. When I was being born, my umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck and I had to do whatever to get me out of mum's womb and I have a very strong connection with that like I I feel like I can remember it or I feel it back from then or something like that I don't I don't know another thing that just when you you started talking about that that really hit my stuff and I'm like oh I need that's another thing that I feel that
0: I need to look at as well Absolutely. And it doesn't sound strange or weird to me at all. It sounds like you're aware of that experience in your body and your Mm. body lets you know. Children should be seen and not heard is part of that era, isn't it? Where children were, their value, their voice, their Mm. feelings were minimized and denied. And children had to basically work out what their parents was okay or not okay or That sounds to me a little bit like a kind of feeling flashback, isn't it? When you maybe need to speak up, when you have the desire or or need to voice something and then you find it difficult to do that because there's that kind of that message ringing, which has become very internalised. I don't deserve, I don't have value. I must just kind of fly under the radar and just kind of get on with it
1: and sort of let it go but really subconsciously it does affect in the back of your mind
0: absolutely it reminds me of the kind of step four which is speaking reassuringly to the inner child so our little inner child needs to know that so for you to need let her know that you love her and Mm -hmm. let her know that you're willing to hear her and Mm -hmm. that her feelings matter Mm -hmm. and that even though Your parents at the time weren't always able to give that message and be there for you, that you can be there for her now and that she can come for you for protection and comfort when she feels lost and scared. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that reparenting, doing whatever we need to do and holding ourselves that wasn't done very well for whatever reasons. Yes, and number five is deconstructing, which I kind of, talked a little bit about is that kind of that trauma thing of eternity thinking so deconstructing eternity thinking in childhood fear and abandonment often feels endless a safer future doesn't seem possible seems unimaginable but when we can remind ourselves that this flashback will pass as it has passed many times before it's not there forever it's going to pass
2: That's such a great one to remember everywhere in a state that this will pass.
0: Yeah, And then number six is reminding yourself that you are in adult body, that you have allies, that you have skills, that you have resources. Your allies might be this group knowing I've got the group next week and I can be open and honest about where I'm at. I've got that my 13 steps to managing an emotional flashback. I'm going to print it out and carry it around with me. And my, a lot of my clients, I send it to them on their phone. So that, then they put it into their notes or they keep it on Messenger under a, you know, they can just click on or they carry it around in their a friend. A couple of clients have got it in their wallet or in their pocket. So it's just reminding yourself that you are an adult now and that you have resources, skills, allies, to protect you in ways that you never had as a child. Number seven is about coming back to our bodies. Mm. Yeah, so easing back into your body. So we know that fear launches us into our head, worrying or numbing out or spacing out. We go outside of our window of tolerance when fear or strong emotions trigger us and we lose touch with our body. And the only way that we can self-regulate is coming back into our body. So it's just being really gentle, gently asking your body to relax, like Danny did at the beginning, going through the muscle groups, feeling your feet on the floor, tensing your calves and letting them go, lifting your shoulders, letting them drop. It's just like whatever works for you of gently just engaging with the body, the muscle groups. And bringing in the breath, slowing down our breathing. Many of us, and I certainly do it for years, my big thing is holding my breath. Mm -hmm. So when we get stressed, we often hold our breath. When we hold our breath, we get into a loop, which is that we then are holding our breath is a sign that we're not safe and in danger and our nervous system starts to respond and starts to feel we're not safe. So, yeah, breathing, whatever works for you. For me, it's just reminding myself to breathe in through my nose and then a long, slower exhale. Mm -hmm. And when I breathe in as well, I put my hands on my stomach and make sure that the breath in, that my belly rises. Because I actually used to do the complete opposite. (laughs) Suck my breath in, you know, suck my belly in and slowing down. When we slow down, then we reduce that kind of the panic button in our system and finding a safe place for yourself to unwind. It might be removing yourself. I'm just going to go outside or I'm just going to go to the bathroom. It's removing yourself into a place that you feel that you can unwind safely and soothe yourself, however that may be.
2: That's probably one of my favorite ones. I mean, I love them all, but this is probably one of my favorite ones. You know, going back into the body, just so much coming at me today. There was just a lot, mm-hmm. juggling a lot of things. And I just thought I'm going to go do yoga nidra for 20 minutes. So I just went late and did some yoga nidra and it just back into mm-hmm. the body. And it was in my safe space. I got onto my bed and just laid down and shut the door and told no one to interrupt me and turn my phone off that's just incredible just to go back into your body and slow it down. And it's like, okay, I've got this again. I'm okay. And it's
0: also so important as well to, when you've done those steps is also then to be able to feel the fear that might be there yeah. or feel the anger or feel the sadness and know that feelings are energies. They're not good. They're not bad. We label them. We've got this whole spectrum of feelings that are all necessary for our survival. The fear cannot necessarily hurt you if you don't run away from it or act on it in a self-destructive way. That's when it becomes dangerous. But the actual fear itself or the feeling, whatever that feeling is, can't actually hurt you. And just being allowing it to be there in your body. Ah, where is my fear? It's gripping my chest. What is it? What colour is it? And just breathing into it, allowing it to be there. Yeah, not trying to run from it, not trying to get away from it.
3: I just wanted to ask a question. This is sort of tied into, I guess, and please correct me if I'm wrong, about learned behaviours of how you react to things. So Mm. Mm. things that happen, like I still can't break the pattern of giving my husband the silent treatment if I've mm. got the shits, you know what I mean? And I know that that's really not mature and not logical, mm-hmm. but because I'm thinking about all the things that you're saying and thinking about reacting, so learned behaviour yeah, or old yeah. patterns of reacting mm. is associated with this, I would think.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and it's really great that you recognise that, you know, <laughs> recognise that that is one of the things that you do, the silent mm. treatment, and being compassionate, resisting the tendency to go into criticizing yourself or just accepting that, ah, with compassion, that's what I do. When I feel hurt by my husband, I shut down. I shut down and I can't find words and I withdraw from him. And and even just using these steps might mean that you start to come out a little bit sooner. You might still do it. But that period, maybe it used to last for days, maybe it will start lasting for less and less time, and you'll be able to recognize that you're having an emotional flashback that's taking you to a time where you didn't have a voice, you didn't feel that you could speak up, you didn't feel that you would be heard. And that comes to step eight is resisting the inner critics, drasticizing and catastrophizing. That comes into step nine because I'm just aware of time. I wanted to say something about I mean, because we can send these out and you can read them for yourselves. But step nine is about allowing yourself to grieve, and that's such an important one. So, when you are in that withdrawal, Sarah, where you are in that kind of shutdown, it's recognizing allowing yourself to release old, unexpressed feelings of fear of hurt of abandonment and to validate and then soothe those past experiences of helplessness or hopelessness Mm -hmm. and allowing yourself to feel because often when we go into kind of withdrawal we're just we're shutting down our feelings and allowing yourself to maybe even allowing tears to come and allowing ourselves to have self-compassion. And also that maybe also allowing our anger, which might sometimes be projected outwards, to allow us to have self-protection. Mm. So sometimes your withdrawal might be a way of letting yourself just protect yourself for a period of time.
2: Then I think when you see it as the protect as a protector mm. that you're playing a role, then suddenly you don't feel so much shame too for having mm. been like that, because it was serving a purpose for that moment. And mm. like you say, Jeannie, I guess the more aware we become or we can manage it with ourselves and perhaps we don't last as long in it. But mm. I think it's really important to recognise that any reaction we have often is just little us trying to protect ourselves. Mm. And so it's nothing to feel shame and guilt about.
0: Yeah, from a trauma-informed perspective, we always say rather can't, the person or myself, I can't rather than I won't. So it's not like even when somebody else does something, to us, that is a very trauma reaction. Uh, and when we go, oh, it's not that they won't respect me or take care of me, it's that in that moment they can't. So it's the same in that moment when you shut down to your husband and pull away, you don't have the resources in that moment and you didn't have those resources in the past. But with following these steps and cultivating resources and learning that you can seek support and safe relationships is that we can start to come out of these states much faster.
2: Sometimes just with the
0: grieving, like for me, it
2: might not just be actually crying or or journaling. Sometimes it's ringing up and just sharing or Lindell or or Lissy or speak to yourself, Jeannie, my close friends, and just to be like, oh, you know. And I sort of grieve in a, in a way that's just expressing, like just speaking mm. about it. I find mm. for me, sometimes that's my grieving too.
0: Yeah, it's the first step, isn't it? Just saying I was hurt. I was hurt by what that person said, or I got really angry, or I feel used, or I feel I don't feel valued, or I feel unseen. I feel taken for granted. It's being able to express that feeling without first going into shutting it down, minimizing it, making the other person wrong. <laughs> or
2: making yourself wrong.
0: Yeah, or making yourself wrong, yeah. Amazing. And the last one? So be patient with the recovery process and also not expecting to never have a flashback emotional thing, you know, not expecting we set ourselves up to be healed or Fully recovered and and to get rid of these symptoms, whereas Pete Walker says that it's just reducing the frequency and recognizing that we all will at different times have an emotional flashback, and it's not a sign that you're not better. It's about how we respond, because we are these amazing, like the most intelligent. I mean, our nervous systems are just the most incredible intelligent. We each have this amazing self-organizing, self-healing, self self restoring system. And just to be patient, getting to know your body, getting to know yourself, learning all these things and just recognizing that the recovery process takes time and kind of uncoupling ourselves from these wired-in responses takes time. Yeah, Yeah. and sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. Yes. Um, and, and, And don't beat yourself up.
2: I think that is so important too. Like just remembering that all the time that we're still human and we mm. make mistakes, or so we have big blow-ups sometimes, or we feel the stuff. Gosh, we all do. Hurt probably on a daily basis <laughs> by people, and not to get annoyed with myself for feeling that way, and just mm. feel it and express it and and be with it, and not feel like I should be perfect. And yeah. none of us should feel like we sh- we should be perfect because mm-hmm. we're not, we're humans. We're doing the best that we can. Amazing, Jeannie. Thank you so much. I don't know about you guys, but I just want to, like when you speak, I just want to come and sit on your lap yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> tuck my own thumb. just so beautiful. Blanket. Uh, thank, thank you, Danny. Thank yes. you so much. I just want to say quickly that My mind just automatically wants to go to how do my children feel? Mm. What are my children thinking? How have I affected them? I just Mm. want to think about them straight away. My mind doesn't want to go, all right, let's look at you. It just wants to go straight to them.
0: Yeah, it's so good that you can recognise that. And I think that is a lifetime of learning somehow, getting the message that you're not important and that your feelings aren't valid and that you don't matter. And so just remembering that when you tune into yourself and start to pay attention to yourself and value and invest in yourself, that you are then investing in your children. You're building the stamina to be able to go to them and go, how are you feeling when I was angry yesterday? Or how did that affect you? You have the capacity to hear them. And tune into them, but you need to
2: tune. Hey, folks,
1: I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
0: into yourself first.
2: Oh Jeannie, you're amazing. (laughs) Thank you so
0: much. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be here and to support yeah all of you in this journey. We're all on one. We're all kind of in recovery as human beings from history, whether it's we've been dominated by colonization, exiled through war, we don't have to dig back in any of our histories to see the sort of intergenerational trauma is not far away
2: thank you Jeannie I have so much gratitude for you and you're just incredible and I really really appreciate you coming Mm. and speaking to these guys
0: tonight and thank you thank you love to everyone